Welcome to the documentary on one, and to the 19th and final new episode of our 2020 season. 100 years after the killing of 14 people in Dublin, Vincent Murphy embarks on a 100-mile cycle from Tipperary to honour his granduncle Gus and all those caught up in the events of Bloody Sunday 1920. Narrated by Michal Amira Hertig, this is 100 Years, 100 Miles. The pace so far, yeah. The pace is lovely. No, I'm, I'm really enjoying the pace. Those trucks don't give you much quarter. Jesus! It's July 2020, and I'm on a bike two inches from a truck on the road to Dublin. Jesus, this section is a hell of a lot busier than our last section. My name is Vincent Murphy, but I'm known as Jasper. And I'm Michal Omerahirti. Jasper is on the road because of a photograph, a bicycle and a piece of both Irish and GAA history his granduncle Goss got caught up in. I live in Featherton, Tipperary, and own what was once McCarthy's Hotel, now McCarthy's Bar. It's still a traditional 19th century pub and restaurant. I'm also the local undertaker. Like so many of us, Jasper is fascinated by his family's history. There's a photo of my granduncle Gus, my grandfather's brother, on the wall of the bar. It's hung there for the past hundred years, and it's a photo of Gus alongside his teammates. The team that Gus is part of in that photo is the Tipperary football team that played in Croke Park on the 21st of November 1920, a day that became known as Bloody Sunday because ten minutes after the match began, as the Dublin and Tipperary players fought for possession and the crowd cheered on, British forces began shooting at the players and supporters, killing 14 people and injuring many more. Like many people, I knew of Bloody Sunday, but not in any great detail. I knew my granduncle Gus had been involved, but I didn't know too much more. It was only when a neighbour dropped in a photo from the early 1900s of Gus on, of all things, a racing bike, that I began to really think about Gus and about Bloody Sunday. There he is. That's him now. Any idea where that picture was taken? Looks like a kind of a garden, isn't it? I'm with my neighbour, Joe Kenny, who came across that photo of Gus on a bike. So Gus is wearing which, what would have been common cycling gear at the time, which was a knitted jersey. He's got a knitted hat. He's got no helmet. The bicycle is a Hercules. You see he's got his two feet on the pedals as though he's actually cycling. Yeah. Like would the cameras at the time have been able no, to take a picture? No, he's, uh, he's literally put his feet up and posed. Yeah. He wasn't tear, um, tearing down the lane. At that time lot of, the exposures would have been very slow. So I mean even... Right. If, Any kind of move would have yeah, shown up yeah. as a shutter in the yeah. picture. That photograph is the photograph that inspired me. Seeing the photograph of Gus on his bike sparked an idea for Jasper. What if he could honour the memory of his granduncle Gus and all those involved in Bloody Sunday by cycling the 100 miles from Feather to Croke Park 100 years after the events of November 1920? Now, all he needed was a bike like Gus's one in the photograph. I'm standing on the road here outside the Hainelli Cafe near Palace Green in County Limerick. He found it almost by accident one day in 2018. We came here with the idea of buying a trike for our daughter. 
When we were here, we realised they deal in a lot of uh, vintage bikes and they restore vintage bikes. Hey, how are you? How you been? Well, how are you? Nice to see you. Good to see you again. As luck would have it, Marty Mannering had exactly what Jasper wanted. Do you remember the day we came over and I showed you that picture? Oh, I do very well, yeah. So you didn't bring a bike, you brought a photograph. Yeah, well, I remember the first question you, uh, you asked me was, uh, are you going to hang it on the wall? And I said, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm going to cycle it to Dublin. <laughs> and your jaw dropped. <laughs> but yours was that little bit different because you did come in for a different reason. And then we went on to the next stage of me having something uh, pretty much from the same era of the same style that I just had in storage. And that bike was a really unusual, strange old wreck. So, you know, we had to look at proper engineering solutions for this thing to travel across the country. After eight months of work, the bike is fully restored and ready for the 100-mile journey from Tipperary to Dublin. So I'm here with the bike that I got restored, and it's similar to the one that was in the picture with Gus, which would have been a turn-of-the-century, kind of early 1900s bike. And they put a Brooks saddle on it, similar to what would have been on it at the time. The handlebars are genuine, the whole frame is genuine. Now they had to do stuff with the wheels. The wheels that were on it were falling apart. One of the other modifications we put on it, which wouldn't have been on Gus's bike, is a brake. So there's a brake on the front wheel. The very important thing that I have to take into consideration is there's only one gear in this bike and the rest is powered by the ass here. <laughs> so I have to try and get the flattest route I can into Dublin. We designed a little logo for the front of it as well, which is, um, it's a GMCC, Gus McCarthy with a football on it. The challenge of cycling to Dublin in honour of Gus and all involved in Bloody Sunday gives me the opportunity to find out more about my granduncle's life. At a ceremony in Feddert in 2020, honouring the Tipperary players from 1920, I caught up with my Aunt Mary. Did Gus ever tell you anything about uh, Bloody Sunday? Did you ever mention it? No. No? no. Did you talk about it to anyone? No. No. I, th I suppose it was something that you mightn't talk about then. Right. Do you know, no, we never spoke to me about it anyway. Okay. But I, I only heard the stories then related right. afterwards. It's understandable that there was reluctance to talk about the Civil War and War of Independence. But there were some family stories which we all knew, and they show how close to history Gus actually was. Now, this was a good while before Bloody Sunday. Eamon de Valera was a young teacher in Rockwell around the same time that Gus was there. And one of the stories that we heard was he used to cycle from Rockwell over to McCarthy's and Feathered as a young man because he had a crush on my grand-aunt, who would have been Gus's older sister. Eamon de Valera would go on to lead the country as Taoiseach and president. Gus would honour his county on the field of play. So I don't know what relationship Gus ever had with de Valera afterwards. I know de Valera spent a lot of time on the run around here and there was a lot of safe houses here. The sports were such a part of the fabric of life back then that there was bound to be a crossover between the political situation and the sport. And of course, Bloody Sunday didn't take place in isolation. From 1918 on, the British Army began to stop GA games from taking place. Stories like that of a camogie match in Dunmanway in Cork, where the players were run off the pitch and supporters attacked, politicised Gaelic games. When martial law was introduced, it was hard for players and supporters to travel, so the GAA organised Gaelic Sunday in 1918, a national day of protest where every GAA team in Ireland was to play a game of football or hurling without seeking permission from the authorities. 
Over 1,800 games were played with 54,000 players involved. A great act of defiance against the British authorities. The effect of Gaelic Sunday was to overturn that requirement for GAA matches to need a licence from the British. As time goes on, I'm learning more about the background to the events and about Gus. He was born in 1896. Seemingly he was fast and skillful and he could kick from his right or his left foot, which would have been, I'm sure, unusual enough at the time. He would have been, he would have been jockey size. My granddad was a jockey, my granduncles were jockeys. They were boxers, they played cricket, soccer, polo. I have been shown a medal from a commemorative match played a year after Bloody Sunday. If you look at this here, I'll pull this out. It's really unusual. It's got a man holding a rifle on a pitch and underneath you have a football and two hurleys and a slither. It was presented at a commemorative match a year later in 1921, which Gus played in, but I don't know what actually happened to the medal that Gus got. Never seen one before, and I certainly have never, so I would have held one. But it's a, it's a lovely piece. Many young men like Gus were motivated to join the fight for Irish freedom after the events of November 1920. I only found out the other day, after he was shot at on Bloody Sunday, he joined the IRA. After doing a bit of research, I spoke to a nephew of Gus's, and he said that after he'd been shot at, as a reaction to that, he joined up. It would have been strange enough for Gus to join the IRA as well, because his brother Chris, who lived next door, was in the British Army, and he served in the trenches. So, But I suppose that wasn't unusual for the time, and I'd say Gus wouldn't have joined, only he was shot at on the pitch and escaped with his life. I suppose saw his colleague Mick Hogan being killed on the pitch. By the spring of 2019, the cycle to Dublin was becoming a reality. I got a few people I knew from the cycling and GAA worlds interested, and I worked away on my training on the 115-year-old Hercules bike. When I was a kid, I lived on a bike. In the past few years, I've got back into cycling again. So I'm going to get the bike ready here now. Today is absolutely gorgeous. You can hear the crows in the background, they're starting to nest. It's a, a really, really lovely spring day. So I'll go out and I'll probably go into one of the local villages like Rose Green. That'll bring me over to Ballyclarehan. That'll bring me back around to Feddert. I'll go towards Killinall and around in a circle. And I'd say I'll probably do about 40 miles, miles training today. And I'll keep building like that because on the, the day of the cycle, I've got to do 100 miles in a pretty short space of time. So and just line up this actually the hardest part of this is getting onto the bloody thing you have to get your feet in and make sure they're properly in the, the kind of stirrups and take off once you're going put the foot down head down get it going again and there's a tractor coming to kill me so I'll stop this year memorials to mark the event of a hundred years ago are being erected all around Ireland and Jasper's family won one for Gus. One of Jasper's training cycles includes a stop at the cemetery where Gus is buried. Nearby is the grave of one of Gus's teammates from Bloody Sunday, Scout Butler. About halfway up the cemetery here on the left is Gus's headstone. Well, as well as being a, a pub and a restaurant, um, I'm also the local undertaker. I started undertaking when I was 13. I was sent out in the hearse. So uh, I knew an awful lot of people who were in here. I'm getting a, a monument done to put on the grave 
to mark. I'm going to put it on before the 100 year anniversary. It should have been done years ago. You know, there was no great pitcher celebrating Gus or Bloody Sunday Hero or whatever. It was just, he was Gus. He was the granduncle. There's probably 20 pictures of my grandfather on the wall uh, riding an entry. You know, that the horses were more celebrated than Gus's prowess on the football field. Brendan O'Reardon, who was making the new headstone for Gus's grave, is in Cashel, a short enough cycle from Feathered. So I popped in to see the progress. We're very nearly finished. We've most of the heavy work done on it. We have to deepen the, the strings and uh, we have to deepen the strings and uh, hold on, I like to turn that joke off. We have to go ahead and deepen that another bit. There's a lot of uh, information on that stone. There's a fair bit of information. Yeah. I was just going, are, are we going to lay it on the grave or are we going to... We'll, we'll stand it. That's the uh, limestone that's out of uh, tree castles in Kilkenny. It's, huh? a bl- it's a blue limestone. Kilkenny limestone <laughs> on a temporary grave, for Jesus' sake. <laughs> They'll murder me. There's, there's no place around here that you'll get the limestone as good. Well, don't tell any of my family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 90 years old now, and during my lifetime, Tipperary have won 18 senior hurling all Ireland's. But I've never seen Tipperary win an All-Ireland Senior Football Championship. But back in 1920, things were very different. Tipperary were one of the top football teams in the country and vying for their fourth All-Ireland Football Championship title. Sometimes we forget that those people in the team pictures from back then were young men. And like young men then and now, they liked a bit of fun. McNolan was a teammate of Gus. His son Tony recalls his father telling him how the team would usually stay at Barry's Hotel in Dublin if they were up for a match. They were so good that time. They used to be in Dublin very often, the tip team, you know. Mm. It's as Barry's they always stayed in. And there was a, a, a Miss Harrington, she was the manageress. But Dorn, Dorn must be a bit of a trickster, Jimmy Dorn. But he, he said to stand on the top of the stairs and roll down the stairs, fall down the stairs, and play dead at the bottom of the stairs and all. And they'd be panic, you know. They'd be panic. And imagine, Sunday morning, that fall down the stairs, you know. This morning, the Miss Helen was called for me. My father gave me a prod of a pin in that. It's <laughs> <laughs> unsettled if he jumped, you know. By the autumn of 1920, the War of Independence had left hundreds dead and the country was in turmoil. Ambushes, burnings and reprisals were common. The All-Ireland Football Championship had been abandoned by September due to rising tensions. But through all of this, sport continued to be a powerful expression of national identity. The Bloody Sunday match, a lot of people think it was a a final or a league match, it wasn't. It was actually um, a benefit match for the wives and widows of those that were in prison. The fact that my granduncle Gus was there and played on the Tipperary team that day makes me determined to get everything right for the cycle I'm going on. Neil, we have you on the bike game now, Jasper, so you'll be able to start pedaling shortly. An important part of cycling these days is getting fitted to your bike. And um, what I want you to do is to put your hands in the position that you... you That's you international bike fitting so expert, Barry Meehan. The handlebars that you have on a more modern racing bike. Right. So I want you to, to start pedaling there and have a look at Because my 115 year old restored bike is so different to modern bikes, 
Getting fitted gives me a big advantage. It's to make sure that things like your saddle is the right height, the handlebars are the right height, and the reach, the distance between your saddle and the handlebars is correct as well. My plan is to cycle it from Feathered to Dublin, which is 160k. Just initially looking at it, what do you think? <laughs> First reaction, 16k maybe, like, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> brave man. <laughs> when you compare it to, to the modern bikes, uh, like you've got a single speed on it, there's no gears. Um, it, it'll be a new experience. Um, <laughs> What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to raise up the saddle a little bit, but also bring the saddle forward a bit as well. Okay. Oh, okay. With the adjustments made, so I'll let you hop up on the bike again and we'll have a look and see how that's after working out. Okay. The help from Barry made a big difference and over the early months of 2020, I was training hard. I also persuaded Barry to join me on the cycle. Okay. Oh, me. Okay. Have Thank you. The goal is to complete the 100-mile journey by bike and then to walk out onto the Croke Park pitch in the shadow of those who played on Bloody Sunday. I now had seven cycling friends interested in the trip from Tip to Croke Park. Tom Anglam, yeah, um, for the GA Club. Paul Shanahan, uh, for the Peddler Cycling Club. Um, Madeline Hearn from uh, the Ballyneil Greens Moakler Parish GA Club. Barbara Ryan from Moy Glass, just outside Feather there. Paul Kelly is my name. Um, just delighted to be on the cycle with Jasper and, and the crew. Three of the cyclists on this road trip represented Tipperary and Croke Park, Barbara Ryan, Tom Anglam and all-star John Lahey, a man who I often watched on the field of play. Well, uh, I suppose the fact that Tipper so involved in Bloody Sunday, you know, it was always a huge pride and a kind of an honour to play for Tipperary. We have a huge identity with Bloody Sunday and what, you know, with the GA and what... I suppose Tipperary have given the J back down through the years and, you know, you look at it from a tip point of view, the County Senior Hurling Cup would be named after Dan Breen, you know, Sean Tracy would be so synonymous with all that era and everything. So inner side you'd be um, thinking of that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? Because we're, we're representing tip. As I got older then I started to, to read up on it myself and to saw, see what these men done for Tipperary and what they not just for Tip but for the country like and we're fighting for it. So I suppose in a way when you're playing sport we're, we're always looking for an extra edge so a bit of motivation and that you know there would be that. Gus didn't actually cycle to the match on Bloody Sunday. The team travelled together on the train the day before. But like many people at the time he travelled far and wide by bicycle. Barry Meehan has a theory about this. On the old black Heinelli style bikes, they'd cycle from Tipperary up to Dublin to matches, to Cork to matches all over the country. But I think back then, people's lifestyles, they were working harder, they were doing more physical work, they were physically stronger and fitter than, than people are today. Um, like to, to be able to, to take on a, a challenge like cycling from Feather to Dublin nowadays, you have to do a lot of physical training on the bike. Um, I think that time people cycled everywhere. If they were, they were cycling to Mass on a Sunday, if they were cycling to a shop, they were cycling to a pub. It was all done on the bike. We were training regularly in spite of the COVID restrictions. A break from lockdown in the summer provided an opportunity. GAA headquarters gave the go-ahead to visit Croke Park in July. So, after a final training session, the team gathered at the old kitchen in McCarthy's to plan the journey to Dublin. So the table that we're actually putting the map here out on is um, the table where the Bloody Sunday team met before they went to Dublin back in 1920. But um, most of the team did have a meal here before they went up to the train station at Feathered mm -hmm. and left for Dublin. So 
just kind of historic and kind exactly. of old. So yeah, yeah. is there. So Ballynunchy, Ballyslow, Gartnahu, and then out in Erlingford. Well, that that bring us out onto the old, old main road. Yeah, yeah. old Dublin Cork Road. So I presume. In the days before leaving on the cycle to Dublin, there's a few more things to do. One involves another visit to Joe Kenny, the man who found the photograph of Gus. Joe has also found another piece of history connected to the events of Bloody Sunday. It's a recording of an interview with one of the players, made by Louis O'Donnell from Feathered. Louis was a famous boxer around Feathered and a character as well, like, in, in the town. But he actually interviewed Scout Butler. Scout was the goalie on the Tipperary team that day. Like, I've only heard one other interview. Yeah, there's very little there from the people who survived Bloody Sunday. And like that's that's rare. It was on the small little reel-to-reel tape, and um, I've transferred it then to digital. I'm hoping the tape will fill in some more details about the events in Croke Park. Before leaving for Dublin, I also need to check on the new headstone for Gus. Oh, I'm at Calvary Cemetery, and I'm meant to be meeting Brendan O'Reardon up here today. Um, I've been waiting for the headstone to be put in, but I'm under a bit of pressure now. Um, they're having a wreath-laying ceremony here in two days' time. And the problem is, uh, he took away the old headstone and he hasn't got the new one in yet, so I'm hoping that it'll be here. I see uh, he's here, he's up the cemetery and... Brendan! Good morning, how are you getting on? I'm good, how are you? Good, good, good. All going good. Good. You gave me a fright? Under pressure. I want the severe pressure, the, the, the uh, wreath-laying ceremony in, in two days' time. You thought it wouldn't be done? Well, when I came up and saw that the other one was removed, <laughs> <laughs> you put me under severe pressure. I no, had, I'm I only had, after putting up the, the plaque on the, the GA wall for, for uh, Ned O'Shea and, and, and the scout butler and himself, of course, and we'll finish his uh, memorial there now. We'll be going out of here in about an hour's time or so. All right. So it'll be all well for you then for your read lane. I'll take a look. I'll just go around the front there and yeah, take a look yeah, at we'll it. Yeah, yeah, we'll Looking lovely. So as bloody Sunday Tipperary team, McCarthy... It's nice to uh, that the middle, the middle stands out in it. It does. It looks really good. Yeah. I know. That's that's great. Lovely surround on it too. We're in McCarthy's and it's the night before the big cycle. Um, see you, lads. Night. Bye bye. Good luck. And um, we have our planning done. Unfortunately, the weather looks dreadful. Uh, we've been watching it for the past week. This morning we all looked at the apps, and it said that we're going to start off in pretty heavy rain tomorrow. It's only rain. The boys in the boys in Croke Park were dodging bullets. We we're do- dodging a bit of water. So I didn't get a lot of sleep that night, thinking about the cycle and about Gus and everyone involved in Bloody Sunday and what lay ahead for them a hundred years ago. The following morning, we we're up early. Today's the day. We're all gathering here now. So the plan is we're going to have breakfast in. McCarthy's at, at the table where the Bloody Sunday team left a hundred years ago. Everybody's in good form. The weather we were expecting seems to have passed over. Okay, I suppose like the the big thing today is that everyone gets through it safely. Like that's that's going to be really important. So when the roads are wet like that, they're going to be more greasy. If you feel the pace is a bit too fast, and I suppose Jasper, this especially applies to you because you're, you're just one gear. Like, you know, like if the if the pace is a little bit high just shout notch, and the people at the front then just slow it down a bit. Like all good sports people, John Lahey did a bit of advanced planning on the route a few days before. 
Well, I think to be straightforward enough up to Newbridge, but from going into Newbridge, I think be extra careful because it was very busy with traffic. Now, I, I suppose as well, going into every town, we want to be going single file, maybe anyway. Our backup uh, cars are leaving now. They're going to meet us in Durham and feed us, and then they'll meet us again in Kildare, feed us up again, push us into Dublin. A final touch at the cycling tops we had made. Exact replicas of the jerseys the Tipperary team wore on the day. They're lovely white jerseys with uh, the green hoop across the, the centre and you've got Tipperary and gold writing written across the top and we have a little Tipperary flag as well at, at the top and of course because we're cycling we have the cycling pouches and cycling pockets at the back. We have a backup crew of my wife Sarah and Paul Kelly's wife Linda carrying food, drink, spare parts and dry cycling gear. Yeah. 100 years after the Tipperary team left from Feathered Railway Station, the cyclists leave on their 100-mile journey to Croke Park. We're after coming into Durrow. We're outside the castle gates and uh, we did that in good time. We did it in just 2 hours 11 minutes. Lovely spin. Bit of rain at the start, but um, the bike is going good. We came up through the villages, up through Killinall, uh, Ballinanti, Glengool, Gortnahu. Came out in Orlingford onto the main road, up through Johnstown, on here to Doro. Our next stop will probably be in um, in Kildare. But, uh, no, going lovely. We're looking for the jacks. <laughs> we good? Okay. On the road again. We'll see you in Kildare. Okay. Bye. Good luck. Double up again. Yeah, right here. Have children. Yeah, safer. The train journey to Dublin 100 years ago was an eventful one for the Tipperary team. This is Tony Nolan, a son of Gus's teammate Mick Nolan. There was a fight then on the, on the train. There were soldiers going up on the train as well. And a priest got on, and the squaddy started to abuse the priest. And I think Bill Ryan stood up for the priest and took on the squaddies. So they caught Bill Ryan's boots and fired him out the window of the train. And the, the, I think they come out as a wrong end of it as well, the soldiers. So the rest of the Tipperary team charged in. They turned out a couple of more. <laughs> and as far as I can make out, they fired the squaddies out the window of the train after the boots. <laughs> so If I had said that, they were expecting a harsh reception when they got up to them, but luckily enough, they weren't anyone. But the management of the Tipperary team at the time decided that they weren't going to stay in Barry's Hotel so they dispersed them around the city and they put them in pubs and houses and whatever to make sure the team they still had a team for the following day The cycle from Feather to Doro had been pleasant but suddenly we were in fast heavy traffic on a road that was often very narrow You fucking asshole Jesus Uh, that was a tougher leg, much, much tougher leg. Uh, we encountered wicked traffic after Doro and nearly got blown off the road a few times. A hundred years ago, there would have been nothing like that traffic. There would have been no traffic on the road. Over two thirds of the way there now at this stage. And uh, feeling good. Everybody is still feeling pretty fit and healthy. So we're going to stop now, open the back of the van and have a good feed. <laughs> I've never played in Croke Park, but my fellow cyclists, Barbara Ryan and Tom Anglam have and it means a lot to them. I'll never forget 
running out in the pitch and even doing the warm-up, you know, you're taking it all in, you're looking around. It's part of our history, you know, it's part of our identity as GA players. And um, before I left the pitch, I, I just picked a clump of grass from the, from the pitch and uh, I tucked it into my sock and uh, I have that at home. It was a great feeling. With Tipperary footballers back in the, in the 90s, it was a rare it was a rare occurrence, so when we got eventually got onto the, onto the field that day in '92, it was huge, um, especially to play on the Old Court Park. So I just I just gathered the the clay off the boots and and put them in a little brown envelope, which I still have. Okay, boys and girls, Tommy they come off. The final section from Kildare to Dublin is a peaceful run along the Grand Canal, avoiding the heavy traffic. Jesus, I'll tell you, 10 out of 10 to John for doing the recce on this one. Oh, by Jesus. Oh. God, this is, this is lovely. I couldn't believe that bypass around there. One of the family stories says that Gus swam the canal really? to get away from the, the auxiliaries and the black and tans that were shooting. What's that? Under the bridge. Under the bridge. After years of planning and more than seven hours on the road, Jasper and the team arrive at Houston Station in Dublin where the Tipperary team arrived 100 years before. Yay! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> We're here. That was fabulous. That's great to arrive. It's great to get to Houston Station, uh, where the team arrived. So we're going to stop here tonight in, the, in this hotel, and then tomorrow morning we're going back over to Houston, and we'll start and we head out to Croke Park. Absolutely yeah, incredible. Beautiful yeah. cycling by the canal there. It was actually God. stunning and just, there was a really lovely buzz off it. That was class, no? Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone enjoyed it. I enjoyed it anyway, yeah, coming up. And we didn't feel 160k, and you know, and it's just great to have done it. And I think it was a pleasure uh, to be part of, you know, I think we can all look back and say, we've done our bit for Bloody Sunday 100 years on, you know, and I'm even proud I've done it anyway. Really enjoyable, you know, good crew. Lovely bunch of people, great day out all over. 100 years ago, the Tipperary players had no idea of the coming events. The assassinations by the IRA of British intelligence officers on the morning of the game or the massacre at Croke Park in the afternoon. The killings at the match were a reprisal, though the British always say that the killings weren't planned. They always said that they planned to go there, block the gates and search everybody out on the way out and see if they could find arms. Now, when they... When the pitch was empty that day, after the whole thing, they did find a number of guns there. But there's a lot of stuff, like I think Collins told a lot of people not to go anywhere near Croke Park that day because he was certain there was going to be reprisals. The following morning, a short cycle across the city brings the cyclists to Croke Park to pay their respects. It's mind-blowing to stand outside it. I feel... <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's some monument. A hundred years ago it was a small little field in the heart of Dublin. Now it's a monument as opposed to GAA and GAA culture all over the world. And you know, the likes of Gus and those players, they made this. What a lot of people don't realise is there was much of a revolution within the GAA at grassroots as there was with guns. So I think, you know, this is a, this is a monument to the Irish people. To think like the British got in here 100 years ago and opened up and executed people and look, look where it is now. You know, it's, it's the centre of a world stage. 
Also at Croke Park today are family members of two of the victims of Bloody Sunday. Joe Trainer from Dublin and Gus's teammate Michael Hogan. I'm Jasper. Jasper, Jas- oh, you're, you're Jasper. I'm, I'm Gus's grandnephew. This is my cousin here, Maura, and I. We're nephew and nieces of Joe Trainer, one of the people that was shot dead in Croke Park. Right. Yeah. And that's our, our connection. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's nice that it's all being remembered and, you know, what well, it brought into this. Uh, it, the, the story has been has been united with Tipperary and Dublin and all just coming together for, yeah. for this. Yeah, well, our, our, our side is always Tipperary, 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 so it's nice to have a Dublin influence yes. coming in. Julianne McCabe, who works in the museum in Croke Park, is connected by family to the events of Bloody Sunday. I'm a grand-niece uh, of Michael Hogan, yeah, so my mum would be um, his niece. So I'm Tullamore, but uh, my granny was Grange Mulcair, yeah. Yeah, do you want to wheel the bike down that way, maybe down the ramp? The Hogan stand is named after her granduncle. Well, you came up yesterday. So you have the two replica jerseys of the Tip uh, and Dublin uh, jerseys from the day. So they're actually from the Michael Collins film. Um, you have a, ma- a match ticket, an authentic match ticket from the day. Uh, the referee's whistle uh, for Mick Salmon. And we also have a memorial card for Jane Boyle, Jenny Boyle who um, was the only um, lady to be killed on Bloody Sunday. The relatives are looking at one of the few photographs taken on the day of the match. Um, but the two teams are there. There's Gus, <laughs> sitting on the bottom. That's my, that's my, that's my granduncle there. Oh, well. Yeah. I always love looking at the, the men in the, the suits and the caps as well, you know. So turned, oh, they were all so well-dressed. And you see the crowd images and the things from older masters. There's no photo of, of Michael Hogan on his own. Um, so that one they have, is pull, I think it's pulled out of the team photo, so that's him there. For the relatives of Joe Trainer and Michael Hogan, their stories are well-remembered. We grew up with this. Like, from the youngest age, we knew about this. The cemetery in Blue Bell, where he's buried, and the headstone that was put on that grave was a Celtic cross. So, yeah, we were very, very familiar with, with the story and very conscious of, of it. For me, I was just because I always liked history. Uh, I was always familiar with the story, and I remember doing my Leaving Cert project then on Bloody Sunday at the time. And, uh, you know, so it always was something that was there, but my mum says they didn't talk about it a whole lot. I suppose in our case, it was very different. I, I grew up in a different era. Um, and that's what in my family, you see, Gus and his brothers were all jockeys. So my house was it was kind of it was all horses, and it was Gus played on Bloody Sunday, right? But it's only when I got more interested in the history that I started to investigate it, and then I got more into his history and like not only his sporting history, his military history in the IRA and in prison and stuff like that. The real memories of that day are outside, on the Croke Park pitch. The stadium is now one of the largest in Europe with room for more than 82,000 spectators. But the names from 100 years ago are familiar. The canal end, the hill, the railway goal. So that's the way the minor teams would come out on an All-Ireland day. So you're out the tunnel um, and uh, you can see right across to the Hogan stand then, the Ards Corda. the subs benches there as well and then the, the podium where the cups are presented in the middle so it's a lovely view of the pitch from here the spot where Michael Hogan was shot was up around here towards this end and near to this side the tip goalie would have been down there 
because I know my grand uncle Gus was right corner forwards. The match between Tipperary and Dublin on Sunday, November the 21st, 1920, was due to throw in at a quarter to three. But with a larger than anticipated attendance, the game was delayed until half past. 30 players lined out before referee Mick Salmon and more than 5,000 spectators lined the pitch. One of the few previously known recordings of players talking about the day is from Bill Ryan on RTE in 1986. First thing happened, the plane came over the pitch, came down very low and circled around over the plane pitch, went away. It was there gave the signal, of course, that the game was on. After ten minutes of play, the match was scoreless and then the shooting started. In a few minutes, it was surrounded and they started shooting. They came in, they came out the air. Five or six tens and they fired five or six shots in so quick succession. The ball was down near the railway and it was down in the, near the Dublin goal at the time. I think I was out about the 50 yards mark. I was playing the half back there. The um, Black and Tans, the RIC, the auxiliaries, they were already in place. And the shooting had started just minutes before the British Army came. Michael Nelson's uncle, Joe Trainer was a spectator at the canal end. I, I think this was the um, canal end. So it was at that end that Joe and his friends would have been um, standing. And when the shooting broke out, people were fleeing everywhere. But they tried to escape over the back wall. And Joe and other people getting over the back wall, they were being shot at because the evidence at the military inquiry says that the people escaping over the wall at the canal end became the target of the shooting. Now, that will account for our Uncle Joe was shot twice in the back, getting over the back wall. Tipperary were defending the goal at the canal end, and it was here that the actions of the tip goalie Scout Butler saved lives. Scout had been in the British Army, in the trenches during World War I. He was trained to react quickly under fire. I took me too. When the first shots came, he ordered the teammates to lie flat on the pitch to avoid the bullets. When the lull came, I was up again and off. But I thought to try to keep the whole back line like doing the same thing as myself. I see, yeah. I had him doing it. Yeah. All right. Until we came down within, we say, 40 years of the railway goal. This recording of Scout has never been broadcast before. When... I was at the left-hand side going down. And the next word is this. I see Michael Hogan rising yeah. at the far side. Mm-hmm. And the bang went, shots went again. He went down. And the next thing you see was Jimmy Egan going to him. All the Prairie team, Barney Simpson, was McCarthy of Fiddle. Bill Ryan. They all went to... The Hogan stand side of the field now. And they were all held there. Because McCarthy went the same way as I went. Scout and the other players scrambled out of Croke Park through the backyards of a row of houses. I was near the the gate like going out at the back of the railway goal. The Thames were and Dean and five seconds to get out. So I got out. I got out there and it was on my hands and knees I went out. Mm. Two people's feet and everything. Dropped out into 
a bunch of black and tans and an old RIC sergeant. First thing he asked me to know where, where my gun was. I said, remember, I said, the last gun I had, I said, I left it in France after me. So I said, come over and he searched, you know, but not none, only the, the talks. But now he said, get over that wall, he said. At this point, Scow thought he was about to be shot. Well, I thought with the usual uh, catch, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, Escape. Yes. Bang. Mm. Because I got over the dark eyes. And he said, before he went out, he said to me, run down, he said, as far as the sea. And get into it, he says, and only keep your nose up, he says, so this is over. Jane Boyle, James Burke, Michael Feary, James Matthews, Patrick O'Dowd, Jerome O'Leary, Willem Robinson, John Willem Scott and Joe Trainer, all from Dublin, died on the day or shortly after. Tom Ryan from Wexford and Tom Hogan from Limerick and three Tipperary men, Daniel Carroll, James Tehan and Gus's teammate Michael Mick Hogan were all killed on Bloody Sunday. Gus was lucky, he actually got away and stayed away, they never found him. And uh, when they met back at Barry's Hotel later on that day, Michael Hogan was missing and so was Gus, so they presumed that Gus had been shot as well, but he turned up later. And so, I think a lot of the families in the local area maybe would have had, you know, people would have come in and, yeah, you know, the, they would have helped them and things like that. So the, it's the a story. real local story here as well for mm. this part of Dublin, you know, it really is. And can you imagine that going on in, in um, you know, just up the road from you or someone coming flying by trying to escape shooting? Well, it's, it's horrific. Well, what we heard was that um, somebody heard bullets. When Gus was running down the street, a lady came to a door. Now, we've never been able to find out if this is true or not, but a lady came to the door and asked if there was trouble in, in the, at the pitch. And he said, yeah, we've been shot at. So she took him in and she hid him under a bed. And seemingly, we were told he stayed there for two days. Standing to one side and taking it all in is John Lahey, the Tipperary All-Star who has felt all the emotion of the pitch here at Croke Park. If there's one thing I could turn, come back and turn back is to, to be in the dressing room and to feel that, you know, that that booze and I'm putting on that Tipperary jersey and you know listen to the team speech and then when I played here it's so different we used to come out from the corner to Crow Park and the, and the canal end but to hear the roar and that it's just an almighty kind of you know you get to the goose pimple feeling and as you're going out you're knowing you're representing your you know your club your parish your county and again you know going back to what bloody Sunday and the Tipperary people involved that, that would be all part of it and, and we still play a sport for an identity of who we are and those men I have no doubt that they were playing that for that huge identity, not just, I think, for their counties, but they were playing for their, their, their country and their freedom, and they were showing, you know, we're going ahead with our national game no matter what. The Bloody Sunday massacre at Croke Park touches a raw nerve in the collective memory. A tragedy that turned the tide of public opinion against the British and helped to bring the Irish War of Independence to an end. When I look at the photograph of my granduncle Gus, I'm glad I got to know him better. He carried on playing and be part of the GAA, and he carried on cycling to matches, and he lived in Feathered for the rest of his life. He was married, but had no children, and he died in 1970 when I was only two. One thing he'll always be remembered for is as the last man to score for Tip in an All-Ireland Senior Football Final. A hundred years ago, 
there was no All-Ireland final. But then they played the 1920 um, All-Ireland final in 1922, Tip versus Dublin, and Gus had the last kick of the match over the bar. So he's the last man to score in a winning Tipperary senior football team ever in Croke Park. So at least we end on a happy note. The 1922 playing of the 1920 All-Ireland football final saw Dublin ahead by 1-2 to 3 points at half-time. But Ned O'Shea and the Tipperary backline hold Dublin off in the second half. And in the closing minutes of the game, Gus McCarthy, the Tipperary corner forward, shoots and play and scores. You've been listening to 100 Years, 100 Miles, narrated by Michal O'Meara Hurtig. It was produced by Vincent Jasper Murphy and myself, Tim Desmond. We return in two weeks' time with new episodes of The Nobody Zone. Until then, thanks for listening.